Hey, hey. Ooh. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club. What's up, Moot? How come we don't get ovations anymore when we come on? Ah, thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so you hadn't walked onto stage yet. Uh, yeah, I need that to just give me a little boost, especially yeah. early on a Sunday morning. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the right to Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike. That's Moot Lou. We are in a music, a, uh, our intro music by Marion Hill. Hi, Marion Hill. Only place you can hear that song is here. Exclusive. Uh, in fact, exclusive. Yeah. Yeah, hoping we don't ever get sued because the the reason the song isn't released <laughs> is because there is an uncleared sample in it. So well, we're kind of floating under the radar here. Yeah, Marino just pushing the the responsibility to us rather than to them, but it's all good. So we're in a music appreciation pod. Every week we talk about two albums. One is one of our favorites, Moots or mine. One is one of yours, and we occasionally try to maybe half the time get in a new song as well. Goal is not to review the albums, but to listen. Find out what we, what you love about it and, uh, and share the musical experience to really get to know a song the old-fashioned way, telling somebody else you like it and listening to it. So we've got... Oh, and if you want to suggest an album, so as I mentioned, one of the albums every week comes from you. There are many ways to do it. CarlAndrewRecordClub.com. You can leave it in the Apple podcast reviews. You can, if you're listening on Spotify, there's a, a question right under the player there where you can leave it. Or if you go to visit us on social media, uh, on X, you can, there, there's a, a link tree in our bio where you can suggest there. So I still call it Twitter. I'm sorry. I can't, yeah, I can't I, get into the X thing. Come on. It's just like, well, to me, it's one of the dumbest rebranding things ever. The, the, the brand is Twitter. That's what, that's what made it special. I mean, I get, I get people are using it. I just can't, I can't warm up to it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I guess, I guess when it started, I remember how awkward people felt saying tweet. And Twitter, like <laughs> right. they felt awkward at that time. So I don't know, whatever. It's the same thing. Twitter, X, X, AKA whatever it is. formally the art, the, the social media app formerly known as Twitter. Formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. So our two albums today and a new song today, my, so it's my week for album. And I have picked in honor of their return Man. to the musical world. Very exciting Creed. <laughs> I have picked Weathered, which came out in 01 was there, there, well, we'll get into it later. So we will do Creed's Weathered. Then the Listener album, they came out in 2000. The band is Granddaddy. The album is The Software Slump, suggested by Brian. Brian went to our link tree on social media, on Twitter, X. Brian says, Spike and Moot, been listening to the pod since the inception. I've definitely found some new favorite bands, artists that I would not have discovered without you, such as Idols and Goose. My recommendation is Grab Daddy. Wait, is it Granddaddy or Grab Daddy? Granddaddy. Granddaddy, he typo there. Uh, the Software Slump. This is a concept album about modern technology in society and has drawn parallels to Radiohead's OK Computer. I would love to hear your take on this album. Thanks. So we'll do that. And then on our last pod, we tried to get to Practice by Jamila Woods. We never did it. So we will try to get to that today on this one. Your pick, Software Slump or Weathered? Well, well, I'll, I'll leave it to you. But I asked you to pick. I always ask you to pick okay, and then I'll, you leave I'll, it to let, me. Let's start with Granddaddy. Okay, let's start, start with Granddad. Okay. Yep. So, Granddad, is this a band you were familiar with previously? Never heard of it. You? 
No, I, I'd heard of them. Mm. But uh, as has been the case so many times as we've done this, there are groups I've heard of or for whatever reason I steered clear of, not for any specific reason necessarily, but just never got into. This is a band that I'd heard of many times before, but somehow never listened. And once again, good opportunity to get into something new. And I really enjoyed this record. Uh, yeah, it's cool. It's a really cool album and has me intrigued to check out more of their work. So give a little backdrop, uh, backdrop on Granddaddy. Formed in uh, Modesto, California in 1992. It's crazy to me that they've been around that long. I somehow this perception of them as a relatively newer indie band. Mm, I had no perception whatsoever. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Did, did that, but that's a long time. That's a, that's quite a career. It is. They're a band. I've seen their name when I've done, you know, support slots on, on bigger tours. I feel like I've seen their Mm. name a lot. They're a band that I've seen on the road over the, um, at different times over the years. So, you know, a band that's committed to the, uh, to the road, no doubt. But I formed in 1992 in Modesto, California. The group is Jason Little on lead vocals, guitar, various instruments. He's also the producer and a lot of times the engineer. So he's really the, this is really his group and he's really the focal point of it. But there is a core band lineup around it. Uh, Kevin Garcia on bass guitar, Aaron Birch on drums, Jim Fairchild on guitar, and Tim Dryden on keyboards. Now, sadly, Kevin Garcia passed away in 2017, uh, but basically this has been the core lineup all along. So even though he's very much the focal point of it, Jason Little, they've kept this nucleus. And uh, there is a certain synergy you hear in the music and that I think bands can build. I think uh, it's probably a reflection of the fact that they're a band that has committed to being on the road. So Mm. sometimes even, I think Tame Impala is like that. There are other groups that are like that, where it's one artist, maybe more so in the studio, but live it becomes more of a group collective kind of effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of bands like that, actually. I think even War on Drugs, I mean, I know they they definitely have members of the group that are obviously parts of the, you know, play on the records too, but it seems like Adam seems to sort of be the focal point and... But live, yep. it's very much a nucleus of that of those core musicians. Yeah, well, Green Day, uh, Green Day, by the way, also is like is the the recording is a core, and then live it goes out to you know you look on stage and you're like who are all those people? Oh, it's in not Green just a trio on stage. No, well, I, I guess it depends on the tour. I, maybe if they do the the smaller things, but the now that they're doing the bigger shows, I've certainly seen other. Uh, other other what's it called other musicians on stage with them they've become like a stadium act at this point it's crazy it's well they're crazy. they're 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 truly when you think about like the great american rock bands of the last 50 years there's no way to not include them like you have to include them like the way that like their success and their perseverance and now that they've they've refound this this you know this this they have so many different audiences because they've been around for so long. They can play stadiums. It's crazy. It's amazing. The staying power they have. And, and you know, Billy Joe Armstrong is a pretty talented songwriter. A guy, oh, he, he's incredible. had a handful of yeah. songs at different points that have sort of hit the critical mass. Uh, I yeah. think that even if you don't know the band or like the band that much, you probably know the tune. So Yeah, One yeah, incredible songwriter. But anyway. So uh, Granddaddy had a series of indie releases early on, self-release before they signed to Will Records in the U.S. and later Big Cat Records, which is a subsidiary of V2. Eventually, they signed an overall deal with V2, but sort of came up doing it independently, playing shows like a lot of bands, uh, just sort of building it that grassroots way. Overall, they've made six records, and they actually have a new one coming out in February of 2024 called Blue Wave. 
As I mentioned before, Jason Little has always been the leader and creative mastermind of this group. Bulk of the band's recorded output consists of projects that he's done mainly in home studios. And uh, so it's been very much his musical vision. Now, their initial breakthrough came with their second album under the Western Freeway in 1997. There was one tune in particular, Summer Here Kids, which received widespread acclaim and really sort of helped to build their profile and set the stage for this album, Software Slump, which came out in 2000. That's weird. Wow. Like that. Sometimes yeah. I think of a, a year like that. I'm like, oh, that that wasn't that long ago. No, no, that, that was a long time ago. Yeah, almost 25 years ago, 2000 was. That's yeah. weird. I, I started yeah, rewatching yeah. the Sopranos again for the fourth time. Okay. And I'm like, this doesn't seem like it was that long ago. And I'm like, this is almost 25 years ago. The first season. Yeah, it's this crazy. Is bizarre. We're old. Man, man. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Happens to the best of us. Oh man. No oh, man. <laughs> so this record came out 2000. This was the album. It seems to have really cemented their status as indie rock darlings, and is 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 the record that seems to have helped establish their staying power. Once again, widespread critical acclaim. Behind this record, they toured very extensively, nationally, internationally. They had a lot of big festival appearances, like Glastonbury, and built even more momentum up to their fourth album, Someday, which came out in '03. Now, despite the success they had, the dedicated audience they built. Uh, they disbanded in 2006 after their fifth album, just like The Family Cat. Had a brief reunion in, t- in 2012, reconvil- reconvened in 2017 to release uh, Last Place. And that's their most recent album, but again, they have a new one coming. You know, despite the fact that they've taken extended hiatuses and, uh, y- you know, they've gone years without making records or touring necessarily in more recent years, I think they, they're one of those bands that seems to really put in the work early on. And uh, they've built staying power. It seems anytime they have a record, they do a tour, there's going to be interest for them. They have that kind of dedicated audience. And it's here in the States, but uh, for, you know, just from a little bit of the research I've done overseas too. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think their next tour, at least the dates they have booked, are in Europe uh, for the spring. So it seems like- So they, interesting. I've never even heard of them. Isn't that crazy? There's so many, but yeah. I, I, I see bands coming through Philly that are like selling out the Met. They're like, I've never heard of this band. Yeah, or the film world. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, I guess it's a byproduct of the fact that there are just so many audiences, yep. and everything is very niche. You know, yep. nothing hits the has the widespread appeal. Or very few things do. Um, yeah, but there are bands that just find an audience and can sell a few thousand tickets in, in yep. a bunch of markets. So, yeah, it's an interesting. It's a reflection, I think, of the splintered media landscape. Not everybody can be Creed. Not. <laughs> that's true. That's very. That's where I was going to say, like, I don't know, maybe, uh, I don't Taylor know. I was, yeah, Taylor yeah. Swift, Miley Cyrus, uh, you know. Yeah. But Creed, Not too. No, Creed, Creed, Miley yeah. Cyrus, Taylor Swift, yeah. Creed. There you go. Creed, yep. I mean, look, everybody knows who Creed is. They were, they were the, we'll get, they were the biggest band in the world for a significant amount of time. Yeah, and so. I, we, we can pin this thought for them, but I'm curious there's a strange backlash on them, which I'm not sure is, is fair. We'll get to that well, though. We'll get yeah, to that. Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. that. I'm sorry. I'm so excited to talk about it. <laughs> so uh, getting through a few highlights on this record, they, first off, they're a band that has amazing tongue in cheek song titles. They, yeah, that's yeah. their thing. That's one of their uh, defining characteristics. Yeah. As a band. So the lead track, the first track on the record has a great title. He's simple. He's dumb. He's the pilot. How's it going to Solid 
Yep. <laughs> what a great title. I mean, before I even listened, I was like, I'm interested in this song just yep. because of this title. And uh, it's a great start to the record. Like we talk about this all the time. The lead track, so important to me. It, it, I, it doesn't matter so much if you're just skipping around and isolating songs. But if you're getting into something as an overall album experience, that lead track is always so important. I think this is a record that you could certainly isolate songs and enjoy it. But I do think this is a record that is designed as an album statement. And don't forget, at that time, there was more of that concept. That concept was more prevalent. Uh, yeah. You know, there was still an album aesthetic that doesn't exist quite in the same way anymore with streaming. Um, but this tune is a great opener. Now, it's, I don't know if you got this. Like, I started listening and it immediately put me in that flaming lips kind of place. Uh, yeah, I, I thought so too. I think there's two things that do it. One is sort of this, how do I say it? Like this almost disjointed instrumentation to it. Yes. Where yes. Everybody's it's like almost purposefully not perfect right. in a way, <laughs> you know? And then his vocal delivery is the same sort of, I'm not that good a singer, but I'm doing this exactly on purpose. Like this sounds exactly how I want it, but I'm not like this trained, you know, you know, perfect singer. I think those two things, and there's that underlying comedy the entire time not not a joke band but that tongue-in-cheek sort of wink and nod that's always going on i think i think that is the perfect place to put them yeah and if you think about it soft bolts and by the flaming lips came out in 99 this mm -hmm. came out 2000 uh yoshimi battles of pink robots was 2002 so yep. it was a certain era and a certain sound but there are a lot of parallels even his vocal timbre at times uh jason little reminds me of wayne coin somewhat yeah, but this one thing that I also noticed another parallel is the simple sort of strummy guitar. That when you peel some of the things away, a lot of times there's just a simple instrumentation that's kind of at the core of it. This mm -hmm. just track, this lead track, he's simple, he's dumb, he's the pilot, has that uh, has that element. This song, and I think even the album as a whole, it's more of a conceptual song suite. We talk about nonlinear arrangements, things that aren't just you know chorus, pre-chorus, chorus. This is definitely one of those songs. And there's a section about the mid to later part of the song because this, this track runs about like over eight minutes, but it doesn't feel that way. It, it feels it feels right. It feels like it needs that time to build, but it lifts into this extended, almost eerie piano synth kind of section, and he repeats that. Are you giving in, two thousand men? Not to I don't want to you know be too heavy handed about it, but again, that kind of thing reminds me of Flaming Lips because yeah, there are moments on Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots where you'll hear Wayne Coyne repeating a certain line, and Jason Little does this too, but what's happening around it musically is changing. But mm -hmm. that vocal melody locks in, and then there are all these interesting things happening musically around it. And like Flaming Lips and other bands, I think, that have that aesthetic, there's a cinematic quality to this. You could see these songs used in a film, short film, television show, whatever it might be, but it has that, it has that element. Also... I don't think this record is dated in any way. It really holds up musically. But yeah, I think so too. Even the, the topic at hand holds up as well, by the way. Well, that's what I was going to say. The 2000 new millennium thing, that's the one thing that made me feel it's like tethered to that time. Because yeah, but but like the 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 takeover of the you know, well, I'll I'll get to it, but there's a couple of songs that lyrically I think I think are interesting given our current our current way i guess or the current challenges that 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 affect us i think when you have ideas and same thing with yoshimi bells and pink robots that 
touch on something futuristic and tech oriented mm-hmm. uh, and even veer into AI, which Yushimi Battles of Pink Robots definitely does that. Those have staying power because those are things that are going to keep evolving for us. Yeah, for sure. It's not retrospective in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, another song that I thought was really one of my favorites was uh, Crystal Lake. That song really exemplifies this combination of songs that have an earnest, direct quality, but then they're coupled with these more adventurous, futuristic kind of sounds. There's mm-hmm. one incessant synth sound that you just hear all the way through that track. And at first, it's like you, you hear it and you're like, man, is this a little bit grating? Like, I, I'm, I'm ready for this thing to cut out, but then it just stays there and it kind of works. It just somehow it grows on you, that same riff, that same synth riff that's there all the way through, almost a computerized kind of sound. This this album in general definitely took me like four listens to really get into. I actually did like the first track when I first listened to it, but then I grew disinterested the first couple of times I listened. I even, I was with our friend Jason Lipschitz in the car the other night and I put it on. He We went to see Gale in New York oh, City. Oh, yes, yes. That's awesome. It, it, was, yeah. it was fun. And, and honestly, midway through one of the songs, I'm like, I flipped it off. I was like, I cannot get into this. Is Jason like, a fan of this band? Is he? I don't think he knew what it was. We actually didn't talk about it. I just had it on in the background, but it took me until the next time listening to it. And I think that was the third time listening to it. It took me until the next time to really get into it. Which is a good sign. Sometimes uh, both films and records are like that sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you need to absolutely. live with it a little bit and suddenly it starts to reveal itself to you. Yep. But yeah, there are moments like that that are, at first, maybe seem like odd musical choices, like that computerized synth sound, but then they sort of work. They just, it becomes a defining characteristic. You know, the sonic textures are a big part of this album, but I also think this is an example of the kind of uh, songwriting where you could peel some of that away and a lot of these tunes would hold up. You can see at Definitely. the core of this picture of Jason Little just singing and playing guitar, singing, playing piano. It's, it's still kind of built around that. Uh, Absolutely. Which I love because that gives a record dimension. You know, on the one hand, it's hard for me to think that it's hard for me to picture that I would or imagine that I would like this record as much without everything happening sonically. But I do think it's there's still some there's good songwriting at the core of it. So it's not just uh, soundscapes. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. just that. I agree. Uh, Just a few other points. And I'm interested to get your kind of your takes on this one. But, you know, uh, to me, this is a band that's not afraid to take chances musically and lyrically. The nonlinear arrangements, the very bizarre lyrics they write. At times, and some of the best moments to me are the extended instrumental sections. There's one stretch in particular uh, between the end of some great titles here Jed's poem, Beautiful Ground. That's kind of straight ahead. It then goes into Evil Knievel Interlude, The Perils of Keeping It Real, that, that title. Whatever that means. Evil Knievel. I mean, I get the perils of keeping it real. Evil Knievel, I don't see the connection. But there's that musical section there that I think is one of the standout moments of the record. And uh, 
they're just really talented at creating these kind of atmospheric soundscapes. But again, there is songwriting at the core of it. So really another great selection, another great listener pick. I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I, I thought it was good too. I thought, you know, the, from a music point of view, there's a two and a half minute sort of uh, like postscript track. I want to sleep. called Underneath the Weeping Willow, which comes after another track, but I thought it was, it's only two and a half minutes, but I think it is sort of sad. It's like the only time on the album that I was listening to it. And I'm like, oh, that's a sad little sort of haunting thing that I wish was more. It doesn't, doesn't feel like a fully formed song at all, but it is a, it's a concept album sort of, you put this in there right here in between two other songs and it, it means something, but I, I really enjoyed listening to it. I also liked, so, Jed the Humanoid. is I I thought this was, I I mentioned something that is interesting as of now. So we're always having these conversations about artificial intelligence and sentience and all all that kind of stuff. So Jed the Humanoid is about building a robot that can do everything that humans can do. But at the end of it, like we are always fearful. The fear of us is that these robots, this artificial intelligence is too smart for us and will end up wiping us out. We won't be able to control it. But the end of Jed the Humanoid, I want to read like the three last sort of stanzas. What are they? Not whatever. Jed, Jed could run or walk, sing and talk and compile thoughts, solve lots of problems. We learned so much from him. A couple years went by and something happened. We gave Jed less attention. We had new inventions left for conventions. Jed had found <laughs> booze and drank every drop. He fizzled and popped, he rattled and knocked, and finally he just stopped. And I thought it was so <laughs> interesting to think about the artificial intelligence finding like a soul and becoming sentient and falling into the same traps that we do. Instead of becoming this all-powerful being, being like, being sad that, it's not getting attention and falling into loneliness and, and depression. I thought I've never heard that even thought about before. I thought it was so clever. I think because there's so much fear around it that we don't think of it in that other way, the kindler, gentler, in other words, that it's there, the AI has imperfections just like us. And if you yep. think about it, it makes sense because it's a reflection of us. Right. So yeah. why wouldn't yeah. it also absorb those same imperfections, those same struggles, those same, make the same kind of mistakes, you know? Yeah, that we do. So maybe that, that maybe to. that's where we're headed. I don't know. I'd like to, I think everyone has this like Terminator version of AI. Yeah, like <laughs> I was talking to my, I have a friend, Ben Thompson, and writes a, a very popular tech newsletter. And I was talking to him about artificial intelligence once. And I was like, why doesn't anyone just think, hey, it might cure cancer? 
Like, like we always assume it's all knowing, so it will destroy all of us and run. We, we, we think like we acknowledge becomes that might be a human trait, but it is not necessarily a, this is not human. So when you, I think we forget about all of the possible advantages to like intelligence that doesn't need to take the time that we need to take, right? And doesn't have the limitations that we, that we have. Well, especially in that field, in the area of medicine, in healthcare. Yeah. Or the- computing or mechanics or, or like all of those things. Like why can't it design a car that drives for 500,000 miles? I think, again, it's a reflection of us. So it depends on what's the intention behind it, what information is going into it. Because that's part of the deal, right? It's, it's what does it absorb? Yeah. And then once it absorbs enough information, what does it reflect? Yeah. See, the, yeah. the human thread is still there in all of this. Because even when you look at ChatGBT and some of these other models, there are still inherent biases baked into it because of the information that's going into it. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, the Kindler general thing, I, I hope there's some version of that out there. But as far as the advancements in science and technology and medicine, uh, it will probably be game changing. And yep. not in probably a short matter of time. It's shorter and shorter. It's the, the advancements over the last three years have have usurped the advances of the hundred years prior in this in this the field. Exponential so, growth of it. It's amazing. Yep. And then the other one is um, minor at the dial. Minor at the dial view. Minor at the wait. What is it called? I wrote it down. Hold on. I want to make sure I get it right. Hold on. Um, every wait. almost every song title has like a weird twist yeah hold on i want to make sure i get the song title correct so i don't fuck it up minor at the dial of you And I thought this was, even though it came out 23 years ago, made me think about us looking at the world through technology constantly, like the phone addiction and the computer addiction. And he says, 15 years is almost gone and I don't recognize anyone from the dial of you. My home, my friends and you, I can watch them fade, but what can I do from the dial of you? Hello, welcome to the dial of you. To locate the area in which you wish to observe, you must program in the longitude and latitude for a closer, more detailed picture. Either use the zoom or the micro zoom controls. Good luck. <laughs> That's great. I, that, I don't know. I, I, I thought the more I listened to it and the more I heard the words, the more clever I thought it was and the more interesting I thought the then the music became more interesting to me as the words became more interesting, which sometimes is the other way around. Sometimes it's the melody that catches you. And then, and then you're like, Oh, the words are are cool or whatever. But on this one, it was the words that caught me that made me like the music better. And it's another great example of why I think this is a good example of a record that's best absorbed as a whole. Right. Because there is a running thread, a running concept, running commentaries like that one that you, I feel you can absorb from a more, you know, from a, a broader perspective when you listen that way. I think if you were to isolate like little interludes and stuff, you might think it's interesting, but it's like you said, it actually took you living with it for a while, you know, hearing, kind of t- getting into some of the lyrics. I think lyrics are always the thing that comes second for most people. 
Yeah. Right? They're not usually listening for words. The melody is what hits you first. For sure. Yes. So it's something because a lot of times you can't even understand what they're saying. Like there's, well, right. you know, not, <laughs> true. not in a bad way, but like, you know, it, it's hard sometimes to, to like really, even, even if the phrasing is in a certain way or you're not, you're not paying attention to it. The words, yeah. The words a lot of times are, are second, you know? Absolutely. Um, well, it's a good album. I appreciate the, the, the suggestion. Why don't we do Jamila Wood so we don't miss it? Okay. And then we can do Creed. Cool. What a combination of records here. Uh, yes. Granddaddy yeah, not, not a lot of similarity between the three no. and this. Not, not, not a, not, there's, we can't really tie these together. There's Sometimes zero we can, connection. this one we can't. Yeah. <laughs> zero thread between these three things. So Jamila Woods and the song Practice. Now, I've been a fan of hers for a while. I picked one of her tunes, Boundaries, for our year-end episode last year. Uh, which was one of my favorite tracks of the year. To me, that song, if you get a chance to listen back, I, we have all those on the, on the playlist, I think, right? On the Spotify playlist. Correct, yes. That tune to me was the perfect hybrid of uh, Smooth Soul and Bossa Nova. And if you know my taste, that's perfectly right calibrated for me. Yeah, yeah. So I just love her vocal style, her, her phrasing. To me, she combines, combines the best elements of a jazz vocal style and the R&B vocal style. And she kind of straddles both. And at times she gets into more of the rhythmic uh, element, even some, some more of the hip hop influence. But to me, she's the perfect hybrid as far as what she does on a very specific level vocally, where you could hear her doing jazz standards, but she's also, I would say she's more of an R&B and soul singer first Got and it. foremost. And uh, I just love that she's never overstated, but what she does vocally always seems to connect with me. Her last full-length album was an album called Legacy Legacy in 2019. Now, this track was the final single released um, from her new album, which just came out a few weeks ago, and this was the last single. So this is all new music that's come out, both the record and this single in the last month or so. Alongside her very dynamic vocal style and the production, I also find that there's always something lyrically that I take away from her. And so it's not just great singing and and sort of the smooth soul sound that I love, but it's also, there's always something lyrically in her tunes that that I, I keep thinking about after I listen or that I live with it and it stays with me. In this case, it's, uh, it's a play on the iconic Allen Iverson, we're talking about practice uh, bit, yeah. which transcends basketball or sports at this point. I think people just know that riff somehow it's, it's even if you're not really a basketball fan you probably recognize that it's it's one of the most famous quotes of any press conference of all time not just sports you know and it's, it's it's it has what's it called it has stood the test of time talking about practice has certainly stood the test of time and it's funny if you're a fan of the sixers and and you remember that moment in time i the context was very specific he was in this contentious yep. working relationship with larry brown yeah, <laughs> and every day there was something else that was coming out, and uh, but I mean, Allen Iverson at his peak, uh, I remember seeing him play live. I had like amazing seats, like right on the floor, and watching him play in person was to me still one of the most incredible things. And everything came with his personality. I mean, he's just a beloved figure in Philadelphia. 
But most people, whether they know Alan, Alan, know Alan Iverson or not, will know this line. And she took that and she took that bit and sort of made it her own. It provided something that's uh, more personal, but that also that I think is very relatable to many of us. Basically, this is a song about taking the pressure off of feeling like too much has to happen at once in a new relationship. Yeah. You know, just take it slow. It just, uh, yeah. cause sometimes you meet someone or it could be any kind of relationship, romantic business, whatever. And there seems to be this pressure right out of the gate for a lot to happen for it to really evolve into something. And this is a song about pumping the brakes and trying to recognize that you don't have to be in too much of a hurry. You can take your time. And the basketball reference plays into that perfectly with a few of the lines. Cause she says we could stop, uh, time for the free throw, like kind of good analogy there. Got more patience than a tree go. Got love that feels like a cheat code. No stress, no, no nothing heavy. I like that image of, <laughs> you know, stop the game. Stop the game so we can shoot the free yep. throw. It's a good basketball analogy. We are, after all, a spinoff of a basketball podcast. So anything basketball-centric, I think, needs to come into the fold. And uh, this is a great, this artist I've already been a fan of. If you like this tune, if you like Boundaries, the one I picked, it's definitely worth checking some of her earlier work and this new record that just uh, that just came out. So uh, I think she's an artist that her profile is getting bigger and bigger now. Uh, you know, I think she's one of those acts that probably by the end of this tour cycle will have a bigger live draw than she did before. So, but uh, this was the last single from the new record and uh, definitely worth checking out. There were two things musically that I, that I really liked. First was the little synth line that is going throughout the entire song that almost in the verses sounds a little 80s postmodern. Yeah. I think you could take it out and put it in a Depeche Mode song or something and it would sound perfect. It would exist in there, which is interesting for like an R&B kind of jam or whatever to have that, but that's what it reminded me of. You don't think of that kind of sound, that kind of sonic quality in a tune like this necessarily. Yeah, well, I think it is, you know, sometimes what you hear in music is based on who you are and what your experience is and what you're listening for. And I think in the in the effort to try to grab something that you like out of something that you wouldn't normally listen to, listening for those things that you find familiar or appealing and likening them to something that you already like is probably important. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about, because I don't know what it's called, normally you think of the bridge as taking you from the verse to the chorus, right? But in this song, it's almost as if the bridge is after the chorus. Like there's the chorus, and then there's this little thing that goes back into the verse, I thought. I, 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 don't, I don't know if there's a word for that, or am I hearing that correctly, yes. or am I just misidentifying the chorus? And it's not something you hear that often. Yeah. It's an interesting arrangement device. I don't know what the right term, it's almost like a post hook. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's something yeah. that, because a lot of times you hear the hook, and you jump right back into the verse. Yes, or maybe there's yeah. a little instrumental section, but here there's actually another musical uh, section that that comes in, which is that's a great that's a great take on this one because you don't I don't hear that in a lot of songs necessarily. No, because the the hook is talking about practice, yeah. talking about practice, <laughs> but then there's like this little like there's like this this you know ten second thing that normally you would have before the chorus or whatever. I just thought it was interesting. I it stuck out to me that it was there, and I I hadn't. I'm sure there are other songs I know and like that have that, and now I'm going to listen for it, but I had never noticed it like that before. And that's one thing I'll say about her is those little elements, those details set her aside. I think what she does lyrically sets her aside in the world of, say, smooth soul R&B, but also the production and arrangement things she does and, and people she works with. There's There are always these little interesting moments, details that set it aside. And 
like for example, I I'm thinking I know the exact section. It's like dun, 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 the free throw. That's like, yeah, it's like, yes, it's like yes. a rhythmic thing that comes after what the main hook is. Yeah, but you could put it before the hook. I feel like, and it could be the bridge. Right, it could actually build up to the hook. In this case, yeah. she reversed it and reverses it. But it actually yeah. makes the song and the arrangement more interesting to me. I think so too. I think so too. I wouldn't have mentioned it if it was just the bridge. You know, the fact that it was after the hook, I thought was was noticeable. What would we it's call a cool that? Song. Post hook, post chorus. Uh, yeah, I don't know that the. Uh, what what is like the opposite of a bridge? Is it a, a river? A ri- Do we call <laughs> a river between the chorus and the and the verse? Y- yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if before the chorus is a bridge and after the chorus is a river, I don't know. I don't know. But it's cool. It's cool. tunnel. Maybe it's a tunnel. It's a tunnel. The br- it's, a tunnel. it's a tunnel. It's a tunnel. It's a tunnel. It's a tunnel. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It's a cool song. I like that a right lot. On. I, the, the, of, of course, it was the Iverson, the Iverson reference. As soon as I saw the title, I was like, I wonder if this. You know, you know, if you yeah. see that. And I feel like I've heard that bit used in other contexts, but I think mm-hmm. I like her interpretation of it maybe better than anything I've we heard. We did. We had a whole, unfortunately, Mike does not have the, for right to Ricky Sanchez, my podcast partner is both younger than me. And I think doesn't have the institutional hip hop knowledge that I do, at least of the nineties and, you know, maybe 1987 through 2005. And something came up with a hip hop lyric about the Sixers. And I brought up, you know, other hip hop lyrics that referenced basketball. And we got so many emails and voicemails like <laughs> talking about their favorite one. And he, but, but he couldn't like participate in the discussion. So it was just me saying them over and over. And I did that. I was, I was having that moment where I felt like I was like, you have that moment every once in a while when you're a white guy talking about hip hop and you're like, yeah, th- is this cringy with me talking about it like this much on my own? You know, so I had a bail on it. But it, there's a lot of hip hop. There's a lot of basketball references in hip hop. I think, in, yeah, in and I think the the two, the culture of basketball and hip hop, they've always been interconnected. Yes, uh, because all, well, not all. So many basketball players want to be rappers and so many rappers want to be basketball Dane, players. Dane Lillard is actually pretty good. Is both. He's yeah, very yeah, talented. Lou Williams. Lou Williams is a rapper. Lou Williams, right. I didn't know that. See, I, I yeah. think there's more than I even realized, but I've heard some of Dane Lillard's uh, Dana rhymes. Barros had a hip hop song that used to be the Ricky's intro song. Uh-huh. Yeah, what about Shaq? Anderson. What about- Yeah, Shaq. Shaq was a rapper with, you remember with Daz Effects? One so. of the best Shaq lines, one of the best lines I've or ever Fushnickens. heard. Fushnickens. Fushnickens, Fushnickens not Daz Shaq yeah. Fu, he was Shaq Fu. Shaq Fu, yeah. He had a song- I can't even remember the name of the song, but it had a line that I never forgot. He, he's like, "I hit you like Spielberg. I lead your ass in the park." That was a Shaq line. That's that's a yeah. I forget the song, but he's actually pretty good. He he has more like the tongue in cheek kind of. Yeah, um, but good. Not a bad rapper. No, very he's talented. Not a bad very talented, and a DJ too. And I should also yeah. mention there is a guest appearance from the rapper Saba on this song as well. On this, yeah, and I, that's good. He's really good, and he compliments her perfectly. His Perfect vocal style, his flow, and everything. Perfectly. Creed. Weathered. What a transition from so, smooth uh, soul was, to what, what would you call this? What what do you what is Creed? Are they they're not new metal? They're not No, they're post grunge. Post grunge, right. Post grunge, yeah. If you want to title it something, that's what you would title. They're just like an arena rock band, I think, overall. But his his way of singing is post grunge. Uh, but there's a lot there's there's a lot of musical influence in in their music because their music mostly comes from staff 
and Mark Tremani, the guitar player. But Mark Tremani is clearly, you can tell by the way he plays, was a, a heavy music fan. You could tell he's a Metallica guy by the way he plays. And it's such a, a brilliant and and awesome guitar player too. I think their, their, their time and their sound was post-grunge, but I think their influence comes from a lot of places. By the way, on the next pod, I did see Gale and I saw Marvelous 3, which is Butch Walker's original band that reunited in Atlanta. And I'll have to give a review of that. What an amazing, amazing, amazing show. But so Creed, I was working in rock radio during the height of Creed. So I experienced Creed. I experienced Creed in a small venue. You know, they, at one point in Philly, they were playing the, maybe the Pontiac or something like that. Oh, wow. And, the, and then all the way to the Wells Fargo Center and the, and Camden or whatever, the, the big amphitheater, they were, the biggest rock band in the world for, uh, I would say, seven years, you know, maybe 96 or 97 through, maybe 97 through 03, through the entire Weathered album cycle. So they are, they are almost 30 years old. They, they started in 94 in Tallahassee, Florida, where Scott Stapp and Mark Tremonti were both students at Florida State University. They are back together after being broken up for 14 years. And, and really, when you look at it, aside from a blip in the late aughts, they've been broken up really for about 20 years, you know, aside from one record in the middle of it. They, they did a couple, they scheduled a couple of cruises with bands like them, Three Doors Down. They sold out immediately. I became very excited that there might be a tour. <laughs> and then I started seeing Scott, Scott Stapp doing solo dates on social media. And I would see the clips and I would be like, holy shit, he sounds fucking great. And he sounded great and he looked great. And here's a guy who struggled with addiction for a while and did not always look and sound great. And seeing him like that, I was like, oh my God, if they tour, if they tour, if they tour, they are touring. So, And what, what, they are they, what kind of rooms are they headlining? They're doing stadiums or arenas? or they, uh, In Jersey, they're doing Homedale. So they're doing- Full on uh, arena tour. Uh, not arena, amphitheater. Oh, amphitheater. Summertime yeah. shed tour, basically. Shed tour, shed tour. Yeah. So, so Tremonti and- Scott Stapp start writing songs when they're students at Florida State University. They hold, they decide to start a band. They hold auditions. And for most of the time, Creed has been Mark Tremonti, Scott Stapp, Brian Marshall, Scott Phillips. They, those are the guys that are in the band now. Brian Marshall was not on this album. He left the band for two albums because of substance abuse problems, but he's not on this problem. But that is the, the core. The first gig they ever played the name of the band came from a local newspaper headline. They were called Naked Toddler, which was not well received. Yeah, I can see how why it wouldn't be. What what was the impetus behind that choice? Very bizarre. It was a strange. Uh, the choice. only I found an article was on, there was a news headline I guess that Tremani saw and, and took it from that. But Brian Marshall had been in a previous band called Maddox Creed, M A T T O X Creed, and they just took the second half of it. Scott Sapp liked it. They called themselves Creed. They played a gig at a bar in Tallahassee. The way they got the gig was they told the owner of the bar, Jeff Hansen, that they could draw 200 people. They actually had no ability to draw 200 people, but the bar owner ended up liking them. He says this, they were playing 
They're playing live at a bar I own in Tallahassee, playing cover songs and two original songs that I thought were really good. I called my friend John Kurzweig, who I thought would be a really good producer for them. He was not an aggressive kind of producer who's trying to change everything. Some guys make everything sound super heavy or indie. Some guys only want to do everything analog and won't use digital. He seemed to be the right fit. He's a multi-instrumentalist and a songsmith. So I called him to make an inexpensive record, a $6,000 record that ended up selling 6 million copies. Wow. All we did was add a track and remix the record. I sold 6,000 copies in the first two months in Florida. Every radio station played it immediately. I thought this was interesting too, because this bar owner, who's a great like promoter, you have to be as a bar owner, it said, my choice back then was to take it to radio stations and get them to play it. If it was good enough for a, ra a major label to sign them, I thought it had to be good enough to be on the radio. I had relationships for promoting concerts at radio stations and they played the song. 14 labels passed on Creed. I was always prepared to do it myself as I continued to do in my music career. You just have to be prepared to do everything yourself. Even, a if, you have, even if a label signs it, they might just shelve it. Wind up finally signed them. They just happened to believe in it 100% and the owner did everything in his capacity. They had the same mentality as I did. Don't take no for an answer. They shoved it right down people's throat and it reacted. Um, so that is, that ended up being the, the debut album, my own prison, which is substantially darker than human clay and this album weathered it, a lot of the lyrics. So Scott Stapp's stepfather was a Pentecostal minister. And I think they sort of got labeled as a religious band when I really think what it was, was a lot of the lyrics were about Stapp's, you know, personal battles with religion or trying to figure himself out. It's a lot, lot less about trying to get people to be spiritual and a lot more, I think, about his personal experience. My Own Prison, that single, I think at the time, the the title track of the debut album was, I think that and Days of the New Touch, Peel and Stand were battling for like the longest running number one rock song of all time at rock radio at the time. Those two bands were really, really big. Ended up having four huge singles, My Own Prison, Torn, What's his life for and one? Absolutely enormous. And I think what's interesting is because we were talking about Stained at one point. What's interesting is as bands, rock bands evolve, a lot of times the music changes for a few different reasons. First of all, their lives change. They're dealing with different things. They're writing about different things. Like, you know, you always say your first album, you have your whole life to write. Your second album, you might have 18 months, right? The second thing is they have more money to make things sound 
better and bigger and more produced. And then I think the other thing is they start to notice what works and they, they concentrate, they're able to pinpoint what it was in their songs that made them popular and maybe sort of grow on that and stained, you know, you have this first album that's really very heavy, but then they have this ballad that works and all of a sudden they're like, we can write those. And I, I don't think there's anything nefarious about any of these things. It's just sort of the evolution of a band and why it's hard to stay the original band because you're not the original band anymore. You know, And sometimes that dynamic that you mentioned of just because you put more money into a record doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean it's the right thing to do because sometimes right, yeah. that works against you. Yes. If you have, if the budget's yeah. too big and people start to overthink it. There's more cooks in the kitchen. Uh, yep. Sometimes it's that raw, visceral thing that happens initially that actually is what people are reacting to. So that can be a thing where you kind of certain bands, I think, chase their own tail because just throwing a bigger budget, a bigger studio, a more polished sound doesn't necessarily always work in in that in a specific band's favor. Also, in the debut album, and you hear this, and the, the second album ended up being Human Clay, which had higher. Higher spent 17 straight weeks, number one at rock radio. 17 straight, that is four months. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think there are certain misperceptions of this band. Like you said, I always had the impression that there was this heavy religious undertone, Mm -hmm. but now you're saying it's actually more of his personal struggle, which is interesting. And I got that from one of the songs in particular, but- Yeah, on on Weather, do you mean? Yes, on this one. Uh, Yeah. But- when he that song wasn't that the song that kind of made people think like oh this is there's some Christian rock element no because to- it was in the first album too it was so, just all over both of the first two records yeah I mean my own prison and torn I think are specifically about that you know so I I think I think now what what higher could be is his resolve to all of those things and it's certainly a, a brighter a brighter song you know but it's also possible that he was on the other side of whatever he was struggling with at the time and the way they write the songs is Tremani writes the music and Stapp writes the the lyrics and that's sort of how they write together but Tremani will write a riff and then they'll come up with the melody I think together and then Scott Stapp will write the words and I think so so Human Clay comes out in 99 they said it said 10 million copies has higher with arms wide open, which was also well, a, one, a massive that's song. A, yeah, and again, I and thought that, that is, had the religious undertone too, didn't it? So with arms wide open, I think is about his son. Okay. I think he had a he had a baby, and then what if? And then are you ready? Were big, but the riffs on these first two records, I promise, if you take his voice away and just listen to the riffs that Mark Tremonti writes, they are fucking unbelievable. Probably my favorite. He plays mostly in drop D, probably like takes advantage of playing in drop D better than any guitar player I've ever heard. Like that ability to have the open strings be able to play a chord allows you to do other th- things because, you know, the, the 
the bass is the bass note is already taken care of or whatever. He's just so good. He's so good at writing riffs. He's such a he's a he actually writes great solos. I think technically he's very good. Just such an awesome guitar player, Tremani is, and I think it shows in the first two records. And you hear it on this one. The guitar playing on this album is just. I didn't realize that there was this level of. Oh, he's an animal. Guitar ability, uh, you know, in the mix with this band. Because I think when you hear some of those songs on the radio, that's not the focal point. Right. His voice is the focal point. The hook is the focal point. Yeah. But really, the standout to me, and at many points, is that he's one of those guitar players that has incredible technique and precision, precision, but there's also just a lot of emotion and feeling that comes to him in his playing, which is a strange thing to say, because some people, some players have that technique, that precision, that virtuoso quality but you don't feel anything from what they play and yeah but his you can feel it there's something there there's something under it you know so before we get into weathered i'll say post weathered so o2 stat gets into a car accident was all already sort of had a sort of a heavier drinking problem gets addicted to pills they do a concert in chicago that is pretty legendarily bad as his performance is i'm sure there's youtube stuff so bad that a bunch of attendees sued the band because his performance was so bad. They said it, you know, they deserve their money back or whatever. That's the first I've never heard of that before. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Damn, was that bad? It had to have been really bad. And then they end up breaking up in 04. And they did get back together in 09 and put together, put one album and a very short two-month tour in 09 for an album and a tour that is mostly forgotten didn't work you know went away is a darker album i would say but nobody really cares about that album so this was the weathered is the last album of that the real creed run and them getting back together now i think is the first time that people have really paid attention to them in you know in the general you know world i also think people are ready you know it's been long enough you know to where the pop music uh, cycle the pop culture yep. cycle, especially the pop music cycle. If if say let's say their run ended about twenty years ago, the main initial run, yep. the core run, yep. it's yep. been about twenty years. It's probably about time. Yeah, and people people forget that they're they're not sick of them anymore. They remember the, like liking them or whatever. So weathered comes out in one was written in about three weeks together, spends eight consecutive weeks at number one uh, album chart. They, I think it ended up selling 7 million copies. To me, this is my favorite Creed album. And John Kurzweig produced this as he also produced the the first album, has also produced Godsmack and Puddle Mud, a lot of bands in this, or Big Hit Todd, a lot of bands in this world. To me, the reason I like this album more than Human Clay is I think it has all the bigness of it, but rocks a little bit harder and has a little bit less cheesiness to it. I thought they there were six singles ended up being off of this album. Started with my sacrifice was the first one. I just think they put it all together on this one. Like truly, I think it's the best of Tremani. I think it's the best of Stap. There is one sort of "Don't Stop Dancing" is a sort of <laughs> cheesy tune for the end. Bizarre, I do love it's it. It's a though. bizarre tune. It, it's yeah. It's like maybe this. You listen to it, you're like. I wonder if this was meant to be an outtake and it just somehow ended up here. Epis a song, <laughs> yeah. So it starts off with bullets, right? Yeah. Shoot, 
what a fucking heavy riff to start this album off. And again, this is, I don't dislike Scott Stapp singing. I think he is a good singer. I think he writes great hooks. But if you were to take Stapp out of this and just listen to Tremonti's riff with the speed and heaviness of it, it fucking kicks ass. I mean, the the song, the lyrics are basically about people that don't like Creed is essentially... <laughs> You know, like he's saying, like, look, look at, look at me in the face when you put a bullet in my head is what he's saying. But the guitar is so fucking heavy in this song. I love it. I had I a really relentless guitar attack. That's how it's because it's relentless. That, that yes. riff is just, yeah. It's, and it's also the way it's recorded. Yeah. Obviously his playing is phenomenal and he's incredibly skilled, but there's something about the way it's tracked that yep. has a. Uh, you know, sometimes certain electric guitar sounds, even if it's heavy, it, it can it can sound kind of thin in the mix. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, body on this recording. That that must be a testament to how it was engineered and mixed. But first and foremost, it's about the playing. Yep, and he's a great player, and it's a just a, a it's just massive. So then. I'll just mention a, a couple of my favorites. Going back to this album, I realized there were more songs on it. The reason I picked it, there were more songs on it that I liked, that I remembered. The one that is not a surprise is the first single was My Sacrifice. Which, I, again, an awesome. Mark Tremonti has some of the best like guitar chugs ever. Like the like he he has such a great feel for that. And I think it's probably Scott Stapp's best vocal performance. And it I think it's their second highest pop charting song ever. You know that it got to number four on the Hot 100. And I think. I think My Sacrifice might be the best song they've recorded. I think it might be my favorite Creed song ever. Yeah, there, there are a number of tunes on here that I wasn't familiar with because I knew I recognized some of the tunes that you mentioned earlier. Yep. Is this, I mean, obviously this had mega chart success too, but I don't feel like the yes. songs here is recognizable for someone who just maybe had a passing knowledge of the band as some of those earlier records. Yeah, I think the only one that has lasted that if you played in a bar full of people that everyone would know from this album would be my sacrifice. I think my sacrifice has, there's something about it that maybe because it wasn't as annoying as higher or they were, but it, I don't think it reached sort of the critical mass that those songs did though. It was in, in all incredibly successful and maybe it's because they went away afterwards. So it, you know, so much of continuing to play a band, at least in rock radio at the time was the band is still active and then when they stop being active there's like the less activity around the band so maybe the fact that they went away after this was was part of the reason why these songs didn't you know last quite as long the other two songs i'll mention another single one last breath is a song i've never stopped listening to
cheesy as it may be, hold me now. I'm six feet from the edge and I'm thinking maybe six feet ain't so far down is a great fucking mm-hmm. line. It's a great lyric, you know, as, as a arena rock mid tempo ballad type song is a great fucking lyric. And they're pretty skilled with those mid tempo yes. to down tempo ballads. I mean, yeah. that's, I think that's a signature of most successful heavier rock bands. I don't know if, if you would call Creed heavy, but uh, so somewhat, you know, yeah. you have to have great ballads mixed in there. That's a signature element of any band that's had success. Yep. And then the other one I'll mention, both from a hook point of view, but from a guitar plan point of view, stand here with me. is a sort of harkens back to 80s rock in its arena-ness. The, the, the chorus itself, I think, has that. I think the way it builds to it has it. And I think from a guitar performance, it is outstanding from Tremani. And Tremani, by the way, in the, the other interesting thing about the guys in Creed is that when they broke up, they just started another band with a new singer called Alter Bridge. Miles Kennedy, who's a, a great Oh, singer. I didn't realize that was the same core of musicians. Oh. Yeah, it's just the same. And if you listen to it, it's just like, you're like, oh, this is Creed without without Scott Stapp. And Miles Kennedy, who sang for Slash of Stink, Snake Pit, is an excellent singer as well. I, I did think it was a good band. You could, The magic is with these guys, though. You know, and the magic is the combination of Stapp and, and Tremonti, I think. It was kind of when so, the guys in Rage did the project with uh, Chris Cornell. It was phenomenal. Yeah, it was cool. It was great, but, but it wasn't Rage. It's not, but it, it's like there's something with them with Zach De La Roca that's like, yep. it's just extra special. Yep. So what did you, you know, obviously there was a smirk when I sent it to you, I'm sure. And then of what did you think? Well, before I get into that, why do you think there is such a back, there has been at times a backlash on this band? Because I never Happens fully to- understood it. Is it just huge popularity and people hearing the same songs too much or is, is there it almost is something too earnest about- in some way? I think there's something about rock bands when they get too big, people turn on them because part of being a rock band is just being a rock band. And when you become something bigger, you think about Nickelback, people turned on them. You think about Limp Bizkit, people turned on them. Like there's something Journey, Boston. Like look at the history of rock bands that got a little too big and people are like, nah, fuck you. And you're like, but wait a minute. The whole arena was sold out. Fuck us. Like, what are you talking about? That means there's a huge fan base for it, but there's an equal number of detractors out there maybe. Yeah, and I was going to say that I think it is a little bit of the post-grunge effect of grunge sort of being popular, being bad. But I think Boston is the same way and Journey, I think, was the same way. And I think I think there's something about it where I think it's rock in general that people turn on in, in that way. I think I have no idea why people turned on them. They're a great band. Well, getting to that, there's a song called Signs. Time 
yes. that I thought almost they sort of touched on that a little bit or yeah. gave their perspective on that indirectly in a veiled way, not in a way that was overt. But it, to me, it seems like a commentary on uh, seeing past certain biases in society, which you know people probably mm-hmm. have a certain bias towards them, or yeah. just seeing past things that spark division because there's some great lines there's some really good lyric writing on this album this one in particular the first few lines say this is not about age time served on the earth doesn't mean you grow in mind this is not about god spiritual insinuations seem to shock our nation i thought it was interesting that line because again i had this perception of that there's this heavy religious undertone which i didn't necessarily hear as much on this i mean it's there but uh yeah that seemed to be almost the way I perceived that line was him untethering himself from that or trying to say that uh, almost to push back on that idea of them. You mentioned the first tune was also they were seemingly acknowledging the sort of the backlash yep. on them. It bullets. Yeah. 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 And that's another yeah. I mean, talk about we talk about uh, album openers. That is a monster mm-hmm. album yes. opener. There's another tune called uh, Who's Got My Back. Yeah, which has unexpectedly on in the outro and in the in the, and the intro as well, what sounds like a traditional Native American tune, uh, which it seems random, but somehow yeah. musically weaves in. It, it makes sense. Ends up working somehow. Yeah. There's something in the chords of the actual song that that work with that. But I like that tune because it's a nice pivot to a quieter, more spacious kind of tune. I actually think in those moments, Scott Stapp stands out a bit more vocally. Uh, mm-hmm. At other times in the heavier tunes, I found myself more geared into the guitar. And it's hard not to listen to him at times and think, oh, this is kind of him doing a bit of a Lane Staley impersonation. Or this is a bit yeah. of an Eddie Vedder impersonation. Eddie Vedder, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's somewhere between the two. Uh, I don't know if there's mm-hmm. someone else I'm missing, but I wonder if that's also part of the backlash is that these are two well, iconic singers. And here's a guy kind of, I, I guess you could say he's emulating because he is his own distinctive vocalist and he's a talented vocalist. But at times, it almost sounds like an impersonation of those two guys. Well, what's funny is that it didn't bother anyone on my own prison. Right. And it didn't bother... Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I I, think his style of singing became a way that people sung for a while. Oh, in, yeah. It, was, it, was, rock, it became you know? the generic mainstream mm-hmm. rock vocal for a long time. Maybe, yeah, maybe that, part of the backlash how you is said. that. You know, that's like... Yeah. yeah. And I think to a certain extent, they became, you know, on Human Clay, they became a bit of a parody of themselves a little bit you get so big it all looks a little silly for a minute you know so i and then there was there was actually a, a fred durst scott stapp war for a little while oh, beef. they had know. an ongoing yeah, beef yeah <laughs> a bit a beef where nobody wants anyone to win you know where everybody loses that beef so yeah listen to this record well-crafted well-written songs high level of production craft in this and you just hear they're a very talented group of musicians uh you know, I don't think I was expecting this level of musicianship listening to it. If you only form your perception of this band based off their singles, I don't think you're prepared when you hear this to realize, oh, wow, this is a unit. These guys yeah. are a unit. They've played a lot together. I don't know how much overdubbing there was here, but a lot of this sounds live track to me. The core tracks sound like they're, it's the synergy of the of of the band playing together. Yeah, and I've seen them 
Like they sound great live. Like I've seen them three times. Like they sound great. So will you time. be seeing them on, on this tour? Is that a... I, there's no way I will <laughs> fucking miss it. And who's the tour? Is I it got, just them or is it like a package tour? Three Doors Down is on some of the dates. I, I when I saw the... I know Jason Lipschitz is a big Creed guy. And when I got the early word that the, the tour was actually happening because we, we do promotion at WFAN for, for concerts through Live Nation. And I saw the... The only question is which one I go to because I wanted to see what's his name, Zach Bryan, and he is playing the same day as Creed is playing. And I'm like, I got to figure this out, but I will see Creed. I will see Creed 100%. And what is their live show just a core band or is there some yeah, it's just supplemental it's musicians? Just a, no, they're just core band. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. I mean, I, you some bands, it's strange. You hear the record, you hear what it sounds like in the studio especially if it sounds like it's live track, you get a sense that they're probably really good live. Is yeah, that a strange yeah, thing to say good. in a way you hear this record? First off, you hear the guitar playing, like, well, that must be impressive live. Yeah. Just hearing, you know, Tremonti rip. I, I guess I didn't know. I mean, this was an eye-opening thing, just like when we did the Limp Biscuit record. I had a certain perception it was semi-negative, not, you know, maybe dismissive in some way, but that's what I love about doing this pod is like, you're forced to get past that and then you <laughs> listen and you're like, this is pretty damn good. Like, <laughs> and listen to Creed. Force you to listen to Creed. So it's a good record. What can right. I say? I'll be honest. It's really good. It's a great record. <laughs> well, you you appreciate songwriting. Yes. Like you appreciate the craft. You know, undeniable so. songwriting and musicianship here. <laughs> All right. We will talk to you next time. Remember, if you want to submit an album, do it in any of the ways I suggested. Just look in the description of the of the pod. They're all in there. We will talk to you next time. See you. Stay free, my goose. 